about sin is that we can describe it in practical, definitive, systemic way. And as we describe salvation, we'll still touch upon issues of sin. And in fact, I think we come to understand what sin is through salvation. It's only from the perspective of salvation that we apprehend completely what the predicament of sin is. So as you know, in the traditional understanding, if we ask what is salvation from, it might be the wrath of God. Um, The problem in this narrow answer is, well, first of all, is God our problem? Uh, This, of course, it misses the point, no, that sin and death are our problem. Uh, It also then creates a, a problem for the life of Christ, because if the wrath of God is our primary problem, and that's resolved in the cross of Christ, then what was the life of Christ? How does that apply to us, and what did that mean? And so, Uh, there tends to be a split in the reading of the New Testament between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Um, Also, it creates a problem in ecclesiology. If wrath is the problem, the cross solves the wrath, what's the church? So people will come up with answers, but they tend to be fairly weak and not involving salvation per se, or in a strong sense. Now that's sort of a, if you, you know, we could say that's a a kind of conservative or fundamentalist understanding. The opposite would be a a liberal take. Well, what's the problem? You know, well, it's social injustice and salvation is, uh, that society is in need of reforming in some way. And of course the problem this creates is just the opposite, is that now there is this focus on the life of Christ, the understanding that Jesus then is a social reformer. But then what about the special work of Christ in the death and the resurrection? So uh, the New Testament picture is that salvation is from sin and death. And this entails uh, many things. It's not exclusive of either wrath or social justice. It will take those into account. But it puts the focus in a, in a very different place. Uh, so we could go back and do our definition of sin and then look at salvation then as the counter to that. So we've said sin is systemic. Well, so is salvation. Sin is constituted in a world, a cosmos. <coughs> so is salvation. That salvation then is a cosmic salvation uh, that is inclusive then of an alternative world and you know this was our lecture last time that there's these two stark worlds and that's the picture is that sin is constituted as a kind of uh, human departure from God and salvation then is uh, entering into an alternative kingdom an alternative city And this then puts a lot of emphasis on our ecclesiology or our doctrine of the church. Because what we're saying about the church is that here is the true kingdom. Here are the true people. And here in the church are where the true practices of being a follower of Christ uh, are worked out. The other second point that we describe sin is self-deception. And 
I hope we've gotten the idea that this self-deception is an all-encompassing sort of thing. It's inclusive that of the principalities and powers of the world. That, um, and so when we talk about Christ as the truth, I think this gets at the idea in contrast to the self-deception or the lie of sin. Christ is not just the truth in the sense of a philosophical or scientific or... Well, he's the truth over against the lie which has bound us, which has us in its grip, which is definitive of our human subjectivity and of the world that we're part of. So Christ is the uh, the truth, and this is a truth that has to be revealed to us. It has to break into the world. Uh, and thus the incarnation, the special revelation that we have in Christ. We've said sin is a system, that a systemic self-deception oriented to death. And this is the picture from Genesis 3 on, that um, the problem of sin is death dealing in two senses. That the natural fruit of sin is death, that we actively then take death up into ourselves. We see this with, you know, the turn from the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but you see it on in the way in which Cain kills Abel, that the generation of Lamech and the generation of Noah, they're killers. So we're not, it, it is a thing, you know, that Paul will picture death as beginning with the soul of man, not in some detached sense of soul. But, so when we talk about taking up death, we mean taking up violence. That death becomes a mode of human subjectivity and interrelationship. So when we talk about nonviolence or peace as an alternative to sin, this is the idea that violence is pervasive in the subject of sin, that it is definitive. And so to peace then becomes definitive. We do not take up death, we do not deal in death, that the system of sacrifice in a, in the, the sin system oriented to death is to sacrifice the other, is to sacrifice my brother. And that can be a literal, you know, Cain killing Abel, but it can also be a kind of a spiritual or social, you know, that uh, I will, you know, in some way put myself over my brother. Uh, and you just see this all around. I mean, we're all aware of this within ourselves, that that's the temptation, is to save ourselves and the others be damned, you know. Uh, and when we see somebody suffering, that's our tendency. Suffering is something that is repels us for several reasons. For one, if you identify with the suffering, the danger is that the cause that is bringing about the suffering, if you're willing to identify with the suffering, you may share in that suffering. None of us want to do that naturally. And so this is the whole picture of suffering with Christ, is that we're no longer oriented to death in the sense that we would flee death 
we would flee suffering, and in fact that's death-dealing, in that it's alienating, right? If you're not willing to suffer with your brother, you can't love your brother. And that is itself a kind of living death. It's only our willingness to identify with the suffering victim. You know, this is the, the parables of Jesus, the, the uh, you know, the good Samaritan that is willing to help the one that's suffering. Um, we are all called then to identify not with those who would put people on crosses, but we are called to identify those who have been put upon crosses. And this is, I think, what it means to take up the cross of Jesus. This is what we mean by death acceptance. It is this willingness to love the other in their suffering. Because that's when people need love, right? That's when we, when they need us. Uh, it, uh, people that are happy and healthy and wealthy and wise, uh, they really don't need anybody else. And so the kingdom of God it is, tends to be make up of, made up of broken people of people that are rejected, of people that are, in fact, not successful. Because Christ has been crucified outside the city. I think this is an indication that we, too, are called to that kind of lifestyle that occurs not within the structures of the kingdoms and the principalities and powers of this world, but, in fact, our city is one that stands outside the cities of this world, that we're called to suffer as Christ suffered because that's precisely the place that the broken, the suffering, gather together in the body of Christ. So all of that, I'm trying to capture this in the idea that the orientation to death is undone so that we, uh, we're not uh, you know, taking up death, but we're taking up life in the midst of suffering and death. And so the life that Christ gives us is from the cross of Christ because it's precisely there, not that God would put Christ, but that human principalities and powers would put Christ. So who killed Jesus? Was it the wrath of God or was it Rome, the Jewish authorities, you know, the principalities and powers? Well, clearly, that's who it was. It was the... You know, the four Gospels are four murder stories in which Jesus is the victim. And the question is, who do you want to be? I'm afraid that in our picture of Christ dying at the hands of God, we would almost join in the crucifixion because we would imagine that he needs to die so that we might be saved. That's completely the complete reversal. We're not in the business of sacrificing others but we then are called to be like Christ. So this is definitive of what it means when we talk about agape love or love in the New Testament of being in Christ. Sin is a systemic self-deception oriented to death through a death-denying identity. And the idea here is the picture of pride and shame. We talked about a, a couple of times that the way that we cover pride is, I mean, the way we cover shame is through pride, right? That, and, and, of course, that false sort of identity uh, is going to become undone. So what is the salvific alternative to pride? 
It is, I believe, the corporate body of Christ that we have one another, that our identity then is not one that we establish individually, but our identity is one that we establish corporately, and it's in this acceptance into this agape fellowship group uh, that we, you know, in a sense, reach certainty. This is the big philosophical argument. Do we have certainty? Well, what do you mean by certainty? Do you mean the certainty of a rational formula, like, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am? Or do you mean the certainty of the love of God in our lives? That's the sort of certainty that Christ gives us. Not a rational certainty. Now, given the certainty of the love of Christ in the body of Christ, that is, I think, a place that we can begin to reason and, and understand. But reason devoid of love, theology devoid of love, Bible reading devoid of love, is meaningless. Church devoid of love. What would that be? And yet, I'm afraid that's what we often get in our hierarchical you know, structures, our institutional structures. Love, then, is in some way lost or left out or made secondary. But in the New Testament, that's what it's all about. If it's not on the, for the purposes of agape love, the meaning is lost. The meaning of the world is lost, I believe, apart from the love of Christ. So, this death-denying identity is one that is incapable of love, and the life-affirming corporate body of Christ is one that is uh, generated, born into, you know, we enter into this love of Christ. We don't, we don't create it. So sin is a systemic self-deception oriented de- to death through a death-denying identity which refuses God in his word. And so in a salvific understanding, we have then, in fact, the opposite. Not that we refuse God's word, but I believe there is a sense in which we have to turn from human words, human logic, human understanding, to an alternative understanding, an alternative logic, the word of God. Um, That clearly... A human word is a kind of thing that floats free from personality, from presence, from, you know, what's there in human language. Well, apart, I think, from the word of Christ, human words then do not have the capacity or the power to convey either our own presence or the presence of God. I don't know if this is making sense to you, but in in the, the bit we did with the, the cogito ergo sum, you know what is what is it that Descartes is looking for? I think, therefore, I am. He's looking for his own self presence in his own thought, in his own language. I think that's a particular neat formula and a particular neat depiction of what the human project is. We are all in search of presence, of identity, of being there. And that's precisely what's hap- what's lacking in a human word, in human language. Uh, and in, to that same degree, it is lacking in love. The way that we're there for other people, 
and you know, again, this is shame is absence. Shame is an incapacity to be there for the other. So I've just I've described sin as systemic, and I've described salvation as a system. And what I mean by system, I mean it's a system that we inhabit, we indwell. You know, everybody's seen the Matrix, right? So either you're in the Matrix, and you don't know of anything outside of the Matrix. But once you get outside the matrix, you recognize this is a virtual world. This is not a real world. Now, the the interesting thing in the matrix, who's the guy that chooses to live? He knows, you know, and he holds up the piece of steak and he says, I know this is not real, but nonetheless, I'm going to enjoy it. So I think that in a sense that gets at the systemic nature, it is a self-deception that we are willing to put upon ourselves. And so the idea here is we're willing to live in the matrix of sin. It is a system. It's not just something in our head. It's the principalities and powers, the kingdoms of this world that are a part of that matrix. What we get a glimpse of in Christ is there is the real in Nemo, who, who, not Nemo, what's the guy's name? Uh, Nero. Ne- huh? I think it's Neo. 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 Yeah, Neo or the... Uh, Nero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, welcome to the world of the real. Um, and there is that, I think, passage in Christianity, if we don't get it, that in some way we pass from uh, and I think this is the thing that many of us fail you know, in a kind of bland American Protestantism. We don't get this idea that passage into Christianity is the passage into an alternative world uh, in which we recognize for the first time that one world of darkness, the principalities and powers, is in fact virtual in the sense that it does not, it is not grounded in reality you know so we might imagine as long as we're in the matrix that you know politics donald trump getting elected or or whatever you know the white house the the nation state that those things are the most real thing that's happening but i think what we get in the picture of the kingdom of god is those kingdoms are passing away the realities that this world would constitute for us, in fact, turn out to not be real things at all, but kind of a virtual, systemic self-deception that will kill us and is killing us. You know, that's the beauty of the matrix, that they're actually their energy is being pumped out of them as long as they're in the matrix. That is a picture of the walking dead in the New Testament. Uh, that, you know, this isn't Stephen King, this is Jesus. He said that you, though you imagine that you're alive, you're dead. And so if we give ourselves over to the success, the consumption, the desires of this world, it is a self-deception that is oriented to death. So Jesus says he who would save his life loses it, Precisely because the ways in which we would establish ourselves, 
the way in which we would have our being destroy us. So we've identified this, we've called it a a death-denying identity and pictured it as pride, you know, shame, kind of. We're always escaping. What is shame? Shame's what it feels like to die. Shame is what it's, you know, when you come undone. Um, And pride then is our protection from that that we pretend like. That's the virtuality that we put on ourselves. Uh, that we picture ourselves almost as if we're, you know, uh, immortal. Or, in fact, that uh, we are not susceptible to the grave. You know, that's the picture in Isaiah 28. That people enter into a covenant with death. That death, the scourge of death, will sweep over but it will not touch them. That's the picture of a false religion, the false identity that is undone in the death of Christ because they imagine that you can make, you know, we we either make a covenant with God in Christ that is the fulfillment of the covenant, covenant of Abraham or we enter into an alternative covenant. What is that alternative covenant? The Old and the New Testament describe it as a covenant with death, a covenant with the grave. And that's the sense then that this is a death-denying, you know, identity oriented to death. That in taking it up, uh, it is a masochistic or sadistic self-destruction. Do you know those two words, masochism and sadism? Masochism is we would harm ourselves in order to save ourselves. I hurt myself, but I kind of enjoy it. Sadism is that you would hurt other people. The picture, though, is in fact that both arise from the same source. This was Sigmund Freud. He realized, he began, he thought that people were inherently sadistic. But he realized that sadism is just masochism turned outward. That it, our own self-destructiveness, our own orientation to death, is one that we would turn out upon others. And so the death, uh, you know, denial is an orientation to death. It's a dealing in violence because that's the way we deal not only with ourselves but other people. So what is envy, jealousy, rage, anger? Can you get a handle on those things? I believe there's an anatomy that we can break those things down. They're kind of mysterious. You know, if you think about it, envy. Why, Why should I envy another person? But once you get the idea that there is this zero... Do you know what a zero-sum game is? There's only so much stuff to go around. You know, if Cain and Abel... If Abel has the stuff, how how does Cain get it? Whatever it is, acceptance by God or... Well, he gets it by killing his brother. So Cain kills Abel because Abel precisely was accepted by God. And that's the picture of human envy and jealousy that is a pervasive part of our lives outside of Christ. Because desire itself is is something that we imitate in other people. We would have what the others have. So there is this death-denying identity which refuses God in his word. And so the picture is that in... Uh, sin, we have a human word, and we stake our life on that human word. 
and in salvation we have a word from God. These two words are not parallel to one another. Unfortunately, that's what's happened in theology. That people say, oh, well, there's science and nature. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, these things are not true. But if these things in some way are pictured as a means of coming to God uh, that is a parallel to that of Christ, then we've made the word of man what Satan said it is. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. So the word of God cuts into the word of man. And with that then gives us the alternative identity of the corporate body of Christ. And the last thing is then that sin sin is systemic self-deception oriented to death through a death-denying identity which refuses God and his word through actively destructive practices. Now this may seem kind of mundane or silly at the end of this, but I think actually practices gets at the whole thing. What do you believe? You've probably heard, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Heisenberg, you know, he always kept a horseshoe up on his wall and somebody came in and said, oh, Dr. Heisenberg, I... I see you. You have a a lucky horseshoe. You're a you're a great scientist, a man of, you know, great logic. I wouldn't think that you believe in such things. And he says, "Oh no," he says, "I don't believe in it." But as I understand, it works even if you don't believe in it. Uh, what does he believe? He's his belief operates at two levels, and this is very often the way human belief. Where do you get? The reality of human belief. People will tell you they believe one thing, and then they'll practice something else. In Japan, if you go to a shrine, the people are there praying to God, and you ask them, "Do you are you religious?" They'll say, "No, we're not religious." What are you doing here? You know, oh, this is just what we do as Japanese. We so which is true? What they say, or the practices? Which is true, you know, the horseshoe, does he believe in the horseshoe or doesn't he believe in the horseshoe? Well, of course, the practice tells us the truth. And this is what Jesus says again and again. That what people do is the reality that they believe in. They may not understand this. We may not understand this about ourselves. We may not have access to our own belief system. See, this is the scary thing. In Japan, I don't think they know what they believe, but it's obvious what they believe to an outsider because they practice it. And so that's the picture that these destructive practices may be things that we would say, oh, no, I don't believe that. Well, wait a minute. Do you practice that? Well, that means you really do, and you're not, you're not yourself aware. I think that for all practical purposes, American evangelicals are practicing atheists. Right? Because, because the, the lifestyle, the morality, is very often no different than the society surrounding them. Why? They, they may believe in Jesus intensely, or they think they do, but of course their practices betray them. They can't be faithful in marriage. They can't uh, 
put on the practices of Christ. And so there's a disconnect. And the disconnect, I think, is here in the, the, the way that I'm describing this. If we don't get that sin and salvation are these holistic understandings, if we picture in a kind of Protestant or Lutheran idea that we have an imputed righteousness, it's a theoretical kind of, you know, in the mind of God kind of righteousness, we're going to miss the fact that, no, we're actually to put on the practices of Christ, that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we are to, in fact, we are called to put on the ethical practices of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's not secondary. That's not something that, oh, we could do that. No, in fact, that is to enter into the fruits of salvation. So when we say, are you saved? I think we often miss this fact that salvation is, in fact, something that's happened, something that's happening, and something that will happen. And it is not something then that, oh, you do, you accept Jesus in your heart or you're baptized or whatever. Well, got that out of the way. Now I'm not going to hell. I wonder what, I guess I'll go play ultimate Frisbee. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Trent, I just couldn't. (laughs) Uh, No, the, the, the salvation is something that we enjoy. It's not that we're working to attain it, but we enter into it and enjoy the fruits of the salvation. And so the practice is uh, where all of this comes into play. And also then, obviously in sin, that we enter into practices which are a self-binding, giving ourselves over to a kind of desire. And so the picture of the fruits of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, those are not things that we just strive for. No, those are things that we actually begin to enjoy. But I'd say we begin to enjoy them corporately. Um, not all of us may have all the fruits of the Spirit in full abundance. But I can enjoy those fruits from you. Maybe I'm not very patient. Or I'm not, I don't have great peace in my life. But I think as we come together as the body of Christ, we can, in fact, enter into the salvation. So in this sense, salvation is always a corporate ecclesiological, that is, it's in the church that we're saved. You know, if we talk about salvation, are you saved outside of the body of Christ? That's a kind of nonsense question. Because what salvation is, is putting on these fruits of the Spirit. It's being found in the likeness of Christ. It's being clothed in Christ. So that's my my introduction uh, to the formula. The same formula is that, you know, sin uh, is then undone in salvation. But actually, I may have done this, I, I almost had to do it backward because of the necessity of understanding uh what it is that we're that's happening to us in salvation, but of course the reality is not the sin is not that sin is assisted. That is the unreality. Um, you know what is the status, the ontological status, to state it philosophically, of evil? Is evil real in some in the sense that God is real? No, obviously not. That that. Uh, 
uh, sin and evil are something that in some way are a, uh, you know, they feed off the goodness of God, that they are a kind of negation of the goodness of God. This is called privation, that it's a kind of, uh, it's not that the devil is has an ontological ground equal to God, but he's created by God. Evil, then, is... Uh, it feeds off. It is a parasite on the good. So the reality, the good, is the salvation. And we see the darkness that sin is simply an undoing of what we were meant to be in Christ. Um, so salvation is systemic, and systemic both in the sense that it's personal and it's an alternative city, an alternative kingdom, an alternative people, an alternative economy. You know, everything that's true or seemingly true about uh, the kingdoms of this world or about Israel is the, is the church an economy of people. Yeah, all those things are true. And that's what we mean by salvation is systemic. Um, and of course, it is grounded then not in the orientation to death, but in the resurrection of Christ. That resurrection is the point in which this truth, this this defeat of death, is given to us in Christ. So, I'm never sure if death acceptance, death denial, I think the terms are not adequate. But if we could get the picture that the cross of Christ. You know, why, why the cross of Christ? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Why? Why is that universally attractive? I mean, that's an odd thing. Is, the, is a crucified you know, person, a naked crucified body, attractive inherently? No. It's, it might be repulsive, but the idea is that the cross of Christ directly addresses the predicament of sin in that we are oriented to death and we imagine that death is in some way or or in fact it is a kind of controlling factor. Whether we imagine it, that may be a misstatement. I'm never sure how conscious we are of it. What the, the way that Paul will describe sin and salvation, we can still talk about both of these in terms of a law. But don't get, I think we get the wrong idea here with law. We picture law as you know the Mosaic law or the prohibition in the garden. Um, Paul will picture the law of sin and death as the universal human predicament. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's not talking about the prohibition of the garden. He's talking about the perversion of those that is the universal problem. And that's replaced by the law of life in the spirit. Still, and so what does the word law there mean? Oh, it's a big word. It's just an all-inclusive word. It's not these, you know, Ten Commandments or these, you know. But it is, I think, the system. It is the logic. It is the... The, the way in th- which things go here. I want, to, I want to, in conclusion, bring out then a key idea 
in all of this that is often missing in our picture of salvation. And I believe it's pervasive in the New Testament. We can say that sin is a sickness unto death, right? That uh, we're, it's, this thing's killing us. It's not just something that's going to happen. It's something that we see happening all around. As you get older, you're going to see more people, you know, you're probably old enough to see, have seen people's lives destroyed by, by sin in its various forms. So there's this, this, there's this Ill, illness, this malignant cancer. And there's a good New Testament remedy in the term of therapy, therapeutic is the term that describes the healing ministry of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, this word has been cheapened for us by pop preachers and pop psychology. But it's a good New Testament word that I'd like to rescue. Do we have healing in the person and work of Christ? Well, of course. That's what his healing ministry was all about, that the physical healing, the physical miracles that Jesus wrought on the sick was a pointer then to the healing that he could bring into our lives. And so he says this, you know, when he heals the man born blind, it's a demonstration not just that someone can gain their physical sight through Jesus, but it's a demonstration that we are now enabled to see rightly where we've all been spiritually blinded. When he heals the crippled or the maimed, physically, this is a pointer to the fact that many of us are crippled and maimed in our souls. You know, there's two kinds of sickness. There's the physical sickness, and then there's a kind of soul sickness. You know, would you rather have the sickness of being lame or like I am right now, having a cold? Or would you rather have the sickness of the soul? Which is going to make you put a pistol in your head? I don't know why I'm always so graphic here. But, uh, you know, why, why, do people, why, why do people give themselves over suicide? Not because their foot hurts, but because their heart hurts. That's the picture in Romans. You know, which, which is the sickness unto death? I believe it's that sickness that Paul is describing in Romans 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That it is a disease, it is a death, uh, it is a struggle, it is a suffering for which if you remain in it, you're going to kill yourself. And I don't mean literally blowing your head off you, that may involve that. But the very nature of the struggle is it's self-destructive. The point is not to engage the struggle more vigorously. I'm afraid that's what we're often encouraged to do in, you know, kind of the moralistic preaching that we're subjected to. Oh, you need to be good or you need... Well, it's kind of missing the point that the struggle, the striving that Paul is describing is itself a part of the disease. That in some way, the cure, the therapy, the healing that Jesus will bring is going to take away that alienation and that agonistic struggle 
and is going to give us peace. It's going to cure the hostility that we have toward God and others. It's going to give us a new family, a new uh, corporate relationship. It's going to, uh, in fact, incorporate us into a new city, a new people. And so the word therapeuo is the Greek word, and it just means to serve, to be serviceable in the original uh, secular Greek. Uh, And I think that the healing ministry of Jesus then is one that makes us able, enables us to be servants, enables us, uh, you know, think here of Onesimus, the slave. Do you know what the word Onesimus means? Useful. Uh, Well, in fact, Paul says Onesimus is of no use to you or to me or to anyone. He has been. But now he's found in Christ and he's been made useful. I think that's a picture of what happens to all of us, that we pass from a kind of useless futility to being of service to God and our neighbor. And that's the picture of healing. That is the word, therapeuo. Um, not that we serve, you know, the, the word is found in pagan religion. And Paul specifically rejects that. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the therapeuo, the therapeuo that is suitable for idols, is not suitable for God. He doesn't need that sort of servitude. Uh, He doesn't need our sacrificial gifts. He doesn't need the cultic work that we might carry out. He doesn't need to be appeased because he's angry and needs to kill somebody. No, that's cultic pagan notions of who God is. But God renders us a service in Christ. Christ is the servant. Christ is the one who does the therapeutic. Um, and so to heal, uh, the healing ministry of Christ is a picture of what Christ does for us in a holistic sense. That what it means to be saved is to be healed. And this then is the picture of the two things. What was Christ doing while he, while he was on earth? He was preaching and healing. And the two things went together. What is Christ doing in the church? I believe the healing ministry, in the sense of this holistic healing of our souls, healing of who we are, continues. Now, I don't mean that, I always kind of have to put a footnote of warning here. I'm not doing pop psychology. I'm not doing the kind of health and wealth sort of thing. Uh, But nonetheless, I believe we need to recognize there is a deep psychological, social, spiritual healing uh, that comes in Christ. And so in conclusion, we can say, the New Testament tells the story of how the evil and sin in the world, the political, social, personal, moral, emotional evil, reached its height. What's the worst thing that could people could do? 
they could kill God. And that's the murder stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the reversal, then, of that human endeavor comes about in the deed itself. Because Christ empties the grave. He empties death, which is the ultimate power of Satan. And the power of the minions of Satan is to deal in death. And Christ disempowers them by overcoming and defeating death. And so the, the evil in the world meets its reversal in Christ. I'll pause there. you have any questions, problems? Those of you, this may sound strange to some of you coming in, uh, if hearing it for the first time. So don't hesitate to say, "Wait a minute." Like you mentioned earlier, this, uh, you know, like in salvation, we have, you know, you talking about the how, how the human word is empty, and you know, and uh, but uh, through. God's word we have salvation, but like uh, uh, like we have totally completely turn. We have to totally in salvation. We have to completely turn from you know human language into uh, the alternative, which is uh, the word of God that you know you found in the Bible. But I was I'm I'm just like thinking in my mind, like you know, like is for everyone to who you know understood or against or even like living in uh, you know a progressive you know understanding of gospel have to totally like uh, I mean change your mind you know like and like for me again like how can I even explain this to somebody to you know and, and yeah, that's the, the how do how do you do this thing? How do you convince somebody of the the truth of Christianity? And I, I may have in the way that I picture, and I think unfortunately in the way the or no, I don't it's not unfortunate, but it's the way the New Testament pictures <laughs> is that it requires a complete reversal. A com, you know, that's the picture of redemption, of of uh, repentance. That you have to turn around and go the other direction. Um, and so how do you get somebody from one world to another world? How do you convince Neo that the Matrix is in fact a virtual world and that the world of the real lies outside of it? Well, you hold up a blue pill. And I don't know. You know, that that what... Uh, um, you know, literally he's taken and sees this other world, I think that's what we, in a sense, have to do for people. We have to begin to show them an alternative reality. We have to induct them. You know, here, what, I can't remember which pill it was that he took. Was it the blue pill? Um, that I think as people enter into a true fellowship, a true koinonia, that they're getting a glimpse of the world of the real. And so what we're trying to convince people of is not the existence of God. Now that may sound funny, because this this was an apologetics class. It was actually the name of the book. 
the most important question you can ask, does God exist? Is that the most important question? I don't think it is. Because most people, you know, throughout the history of the world have believed in the existence of God. So, the problem is the God that we would posit as a part of one world is the wrong God. He's a hungry, angry, you know, uh, demanding kind of God that in the end is, in fact, kind of abhorrent. But that's the God of a, of a, I think, the wrong system. So the idea is that we begin to show people, we begin to, the, the contours, that we take them into this foreign country, this alternative world. And maybe, you know, at first they can't see it. Maybe it's too overwhelming. Maybe they can't take it all in. Now that would be the hopeful thing, that it's so, you know, hopefully our communities, these little communities of the saved that we have, hopefully we're doing life together in such a way that it is so starkly different that it's attractive, but perhaps not completely within people's comprehension. The danger is that we're in fact not doing life together, but we're doing, you know, kind of big business church with preachers with big teeth and big hair. And I don't know why the big teeth and big hair are necessary, but they seem to be a standard part. Uh, and that the church then just becomes kind of a corporate uh identity in which they're continually inviting people in, not on the basis of an alternative world, but on the basis of the capitalistic middle class you know, society that we have here. And so people join the church and imagine that that's going to help them be successful you know, in the matrix. Uh, well, no, I think that true Christianity has nothing to do with that kind of big business Christianity in the the sales preachers that we tend to have. No, real Christianity is the desert of the real. And it is a desert in a sense. I mean, I think that's the the picture is that it is bleak. There is a bleak side to this, you understand. Because what we're saying is that people are spending their lives, they're investing their lives in a deception and a lie. And so I think you almost have to see the darkness before you can see the light. That as the light penetrates the darkness, you recognize, oh, wait a minute. Everything that I believe, the world that I was committed to, is in some way uh, a part of a, a matrix, a deception, a lie. So what we're talking about is a shift in a worldview it's an engagement of the imagination in the full sense of the word. That uh, we have to capture people's imagination. It's not just rationally arguing the existence of God or giving good evidences. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give good evidences. But Christianity is more than an intellectual position that we arrive at on the basis of a logic that's given to us in this world. Christianity is an alternative world with its own logic and its own economics and system of social system.
God. Given by God. We can't create it. We can't do it. We can't make it. Yeah. We can just enter into it and enjoy it. This is like the opposite, you know, like how we can depend on, like, on another way, like we can say that we God depends on our words to describe Him, and it depends on us to, you know, like, actually influence, I mean, have some type of, like, spreading this, you know, uh, you know evidence of how to prove Him through our own, you know, logic is like... And immediately we like just like you know, hey, it's, it, it depends on you know how we think, how we. But yeah, and inst- instead, it's uh, it's that God has given us a word. That's unbelievable. This whole thing is unbelievable. As long as you're in one understanding, right? God died on a cross two thousand years ago. Who's going to believe that? Well, that's the entry point. That's the beginning point. You know, the incarnation of Christ. So God has given us a word. And we are witnesses to that word. That's all we have to do. We just have to point people to Christ. We witness to Christ. That doesn't mean I apprehend it in, in its fullness. So I'm not responsible for, as you're describing, you know, the, that what we would do, I'm afraid, in our apologetic arguments is come up with a human demonstration of the proof for the existence of God. But God has given us, in the incarnation and the death and the resurrection, uh, a picture, a proof, that is all we need. And the question is, are the proofs that we would give and the demonstration that God has given, are they parallel to one another? And what I would suggest is that, unfortunately, our proofs, will end up giving us the wrong God. The God of Aristotle, the God of the ontological argument, the cosmological, teleological argument, I'm afraid is too often misconstrued. And so then we have the two systems and we have to make the God that we've been, has been revealed to us in Christ fit in to this alternative system. If this, if you think I'm just playing a game here or talking abstract, no, that's the history of the church. That's the history of the church councils. They're trying to fit one understanding of God that we have given in special revelation into a Greek understanding of God given to us by Plato and Aristotle. I just think Plato and Aristotle are wrong. I'm not saying everything they said was wrong, but what they said about God, he's not really the unmoved mover. No, he moves. He creates. He's incarnate. In fellowship. And being like Christ. So how was was there salvation like in the Old Testament? How was that to be played out? Yeah, I think that the fullness of salvation comes in Christ. So um, the, the picture is that in some way the salvation that is given to us is a universal salvation. That just as, uh, you know, uh, they look forward to Christ in the same way we look backward. Now that is not quite true in that I think we enjoy the fruits of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so the salvation is the establishment of the new Jerusalem, a new kingdom, a new people that is men 
part of the redemptive plan that God is working out throughout history, but it's fulfilled and culminates in the person and work of Christ. Now, a little bit, I'm sidestepping your question, you know. Uh, I think that God, in some way, this is a universal salvation that is available. And by universal, I don't mean that everybody's automatically saved. I just mean that it's cosmic and and is for all people. I don't necessarily understand how it uh, is going to, you know, uh, how this kingdom, how the new Jerusalem, that's the picture in Revelation, will in fact become the eternal city. But it is the work that God is carrying out. So did were the Jews, you know, uh, saved? Well, they were looking forward to that salvation, and w- they saw it realized. This is Paul's argument. Paul reduces the argument. He talks it all about all of it in terms of his contemporaries. That here is what you Jews, you know, my kinsmen have been looking for. And so, yes, inasmuch as they had looked to the Messiah, and will then turn to the Messiah. Uh, this was the purposes of